after three years at Rushworth's, Lillian took a job at a rival store on Parker Street off Clayton Square. As a small boy, I remember the square being filled with flower stalls, a taxi stand, and containing the J.C. Cinema, which offered a continuous program of cartoons. It was a perfect place. Later, the J.C. became an art cinema, showing such titles as Street of Shame and The Subject to Sex before mutating again into an X-rated cinema and eventually into the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament. Back in the late 40s, the scene was somewhat different. The shop in which Lillian now worked was called Bennett's, a smaller operation that attracted musicians on their break from tea dances at Reese's, a fancy restaurant and bakery with a ballroom on the first floor. Needless to say, these musicians never bought anything and only wanted to have my ma'am audition records for them. So Sol Bennett would periodically chase these deadbeats out of the shop. However, word eventually got around that Lillian was the girl in Bennett's who knows about jazz. And that is how my parents met across the counter of a record shop. My father had just returned from his national service in Egypt with the RAF and had started to play trumpet in the Merseyside clubs. Ross McManus and his quintet were sometimes billed as coming direct from their engagements in Paris and London when they had yet to cross Mercy from the British Legion Hall and Park Road East Birkenhead to achieve the dizzying heights of playing a cellar in Liverpool, Ross would perch on the stairs below Mr. Bennett's office in yellow socks and a second-hand American sports jacket. He and his friends all wanted to be Americans. They even started playing baseball in Birkenhead Park in a team called the Bidston Indians and took to standing around in wire-rimmed sunglasses and old USAAF fly jackets with a cartoon Indian painted on the back. One of the gang changed his name to the more Yankee-sounding handle of Zeke, so I suppose Ronald McManus got off lightly when he decided to go by his third given name of Ross. He'd roll out his plans for the future until my mother ran out of new releases to spin or Mr. Bennett had him ejected from the shop. Eventually, he persuaded Lillian to sing at band rehearsals, as his vocalists could never get there in time for a day job at Littlewood's Pools. Lillian knew all the songs, even though she never had the confidence to sing in public. Ross started to lead the Bop City All-Stars in evenings that offered rocking with Ross at any venue that would have them. My mother would collect a small entrance fee that barely covered the band's costs, while the patrons often had to smuggle in their own alcohol if the hall lacked a license. Not everyone 
was so thrilled about what they were playing. A trumpet player from the Mercy Sippy Band, a popular traditional jazz group, punched Russ for belligerently pestering him for a loan of his mouthpiece in order to play this weird new music. Lillian found it equally difficult to persuade Mr. Bennett to stock obscure items on the understanding that there was a small and probably penniless pool of potential buyers. One of her customers was absolutely determined to hear the revolutionary new recordings of Lenny Tristano and Lee Konitz. Discs that had not yet been issued in England in order to record directly from America, it was prohibitively expensive due to the levy of import taxes. So Lillian took matters into her own hands. She was friendly with a young man named Norman Milne, who sang part-time at clubs around town. He was working as a merchant seaman until he could make his living in music. So when she heard he was shipping out for New York, my mother gave him five pounds of her own money and the details of the Tristano Konitz records. Norman must have smuggled them back into Liverpool in his suitcase. But then Norman doesn't sound like the name of anyone responsible for sneaking dutiable items past the customs and excise officer. My mother's ingenuity and her seafaring pal kept her customers supplied with rare and unavailable music. And Norman, the vocalizing merchant seaman, went on to win a singing contest at Radio City Music Hall during one of his working passages to New York. And emboldened by this, took up a full-time career in show business. He changed his name to Michael Holiday and became a popular recording artist in the easygoing style of Bing Crosby. He had UK hits with The Yellow Rose of Texas and 16 Tons and later sang the theme song to Jerry Anderson's Marionette Western series for Feather Falls. In 1958, he had his first number one record with the Story of My Life, a song by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. One morning in 1963, my mother and I were listening to Jack Demonio on the home service when the death of Michael Holliday was announced. My mom gasped and perhaps even stifled some tears. My dad was still living with us then. He was sleeping off whatever he had been up to after leaving work the night before. When it came time to wake him, I carelessly blurted out the news, having no way to appreciate the coded implications of the report. The BBC said that the singer suffered from stage fright and had had a nervous breakdown. I had no idea what those terms meant just that my parents were upset by the news. It was not until I was much older that I became aware of the secrets a man might have been obliged to keep in those days. Forty years later, I invited Lee Konitz to come to New York studio to play in a track for an album of lost and found love songs called North. He added a beautiful 
alto saxophone solo on the coda of my song, Someone Took the Words Away. At the end of the session, I told Lee about my mother smuggling his records into England and asked if he would sign and dedicate the lead sheet to her. With characteristically terse economy, he wrote, Lillian, thanks. Lee Konitz. <laughs> 